syrups, you got this big, bold flavor. Boom, it happens quick. Mid-palate starts to die off. And then, you know, some of the other things come in underneath it. With infusions, it takes time for these flavors to develop. You get these peaks and valleys throughout your entire flavor experience, and it just takes longer to taste everything. It's a really cool experience. If you want to have like a minute, minute and a half flavor experience, infusions are probably where you want to go. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Decoding Cocktails podcast. I'm your host, Chris LeBeau. At the ripe age of 38, I left my former career behind and joined the hospitality industry. Since then, I've been on a rapid journey of learning, meeting all sorts of great people, and this, this podcast, is my chance to bring you along with me. Whether I'm interviewing somebody that works in the industry, another enthusiast, or occasionally stepping back to share what I'm working on or my thoughts. I'm so glad you're here. And so with that aside, let's get into today's episode. What's happening, everybody? Welcome back for another episode of the Decoding Cocktails podcast. I am Chris Lebeau, and today I'm going to be joined by another Chris, Chris Tunstall. He and his wife, Julia, founded A Bar Above in their living room in 2013, a glamorous start, as I can attest to with my own start of my own business uh, several years ago. But they really came to the uh, this space with a focus on education, which I'm also familiar with, but creating their first YouTube videos in 2014. And you'll get to hear during this conversation a good laugh about how he thought he should push content out before our back when our minds weren't as geared to think about online education. Uh, they published their first podcast episode in 2014 and uh, and launched their first mixology certification course online the same year. Um, Chris takes pride in saying that liquor.com often rates it as its top online course every year, but we'll also tell you about how much work that really was too. So where the company is today really began in 2016, which is they got into the barware game. Having worked in plenty of uh, higher speed, higher volume cocktail bars, Chris was familiar with all sorts of faults in equipment uh, other bar accessories, etc. And so he began the engineering and idea process of how do I make this equipment really work in the industry? And so I asked him a general question, like, why do some bar products suck? And he really kind of unpacks that for us a little bit. Uh, this was an important one for me too, for everybody out there listening. So one of the uh, most missed bar tools that we take for granted that Chris points out is not all jiggers uh, are marked appropriately. So at times where a jigger might say a half ounce or an ounce, it might not necessarily be that amount. And so he'll talk a little bit about why. And a great thing is uh, if you have a scale at home, you can always check out how many grams uh, a half ounce or ounce is and actually see if your jigger is performing appropriately. So that was a wild one. But also in the uh, product creation game, Chris talked about how proud he was of their bar mats of all things. And you'll get to hear him talk about why. They also have a wide variety of courses. So if you want to just get better at particular parts of your mixology at home practice or in bar practice, they have classes on syrups, extractions, bitters, etc. And as we kind of brought things to an end, Chris 
talked a little bit about the importance of cultivating regulars, not just from a revenue standpoint, but also from a efficiency and focus standpoint. Regulars help keep other people occupied when you're really busy. And he was kind enough to give me a few tips on this consulting practice I've launched. Since Chris ran a podcast for years, he said something at the very end that I don't typically take the time to say at my end at the front end. If you enjoy listening to this, it would be wonderful if you'd stop right now and leave us a quick review. It would be, it would go a long way. Keep up with Chris and Julia at their website, abarabove.com or on Instagram at abarabove. Chris is a, a really delightful soul, and uh, I know you're going to enjoy this conversation. Well, Chris, I, uh, I certainly had the chance to do some fun research and having listened to your podcast and whatnot for a while, I'm excited for this. Like, I think, so, you know, for my own journey, you know, having really gotten started professionally in mixology, like a little bit under four years ago, I would certainly remember a bar above being one of those first sites that I ran into and whatnot. And I guess, you know, where I'd love to start because, you know, the tools that you have created have certainly been a big part of are, are the driving force of a bar above these days. But for a lot of people out there still, they see a cocktail shaker, they see one, you know, they're all the same. And yet so often when I'm in people's homes or businesses, people are thinking of that cheap uh, cocktail set, you know, that's often comes with a cobbler shaker at home. And when they get cold, they just fuse shut immediately. So being a guy who's operated in the barware space, what is it about cheap tools that sucks so bad. I know you've talked about breaking a bunch in the middle of the shift, but tell us about engineering them and why Why do crappy tools suck so bad? This is a great question because um, this is where kind of a bar above started was a lot of frustration, like my own personal frustration, both you know with professional development and professional equipment. Um, so this is a great question, and I'm not sure how long this podcast is going to last, but we could go on for days on this subject. <laughs> so first of Roll all, I think one it, of the please. questions... Sounds good. All right. So you mentioned kind of like the beginner set and the beginner equipment and um, the cobbler shaker in in particular. And it's a great launching uh, spot. Like with any hobby, if you're just getting into it, you know, you don't want to invest in really quality tools until you know you're going to be doing it for a long time. So when you find these 40 piece, you know, bar sets on Amazon for $25, it's probably going to check that box, right? You're going to take it out for a test drive. You're going to start to experiment. You're going to see if, you know, this might be something you want to do. But just like with any hobby, as you start to progress and you start to hit, you know, the limits of what your tools can do, it becomes a pain point. It becomes very frustrating. It becomes more work to make cocktails than the enjoyment that comes out of it. So when we, especially on, on the hobby side or kind of at the home bartender side, you know, there there's certain limitations that those tools can provide. For example, the jiggers, they don't have a lot of measurements, if any. So the limitations you already have are pretty you're guessing at this point. And at that point, why even have Dan Fool? Um, and so with the the cobbler shaker, um, the biggest frustration, as I'm sure everybody can relate to, is when they just freeze shut. And then you can't get into the cocktail that you worked so hard to make. And, you know, if you're entertaining, then people are looking at you like you don't know what you're doing. And then you got to figure out how to open the damn shaker. I, I remember I got a cocktail shaker from a really reputable company. Three years ago, a cobbler shaker, it's still frozen shut. 
I can't get the damn thing open. So I was like, all right, man. Um, but the reason for it is um, a lot of these companies, they don't really, they're there to make money. They're not there to support the hobby. They're not there to invest in, in learning more about the craft. They're there simply to make money. So they're looking for the cheapest products and they don't care how they function as long as they get the sale. So that cobbler shaker is going to free shut because of thermal expansion or contraction. So when things get cold, they contract, and that thing just becomes a solid piece of metal at that point. And it becomes very frustrating in order to get those open, as we all know. So that's kind of why I don't really recommend being in that space very long. Uh, we don't operate in that space. We always do professional-grade tools um, because I just find it frustrating. And if I'm going to sell to my younger self or a professional bartender coming up through the ranks, I want to ensure that they get the best quality tools um, that they possibly can. So that way it works fast and um, they have a great experience making cocktails and they look good doing it too. So yeah, there, there's a lot to unpack on, on really terrible bar tools. There, There is, and uh, you used a term in a recent conversation you had with Phil Duff that I enjoyed. Um, mm -hmm. uh, points of failure is a term that kind of helped me actually kickstart my uh, how I think about mixology, but you talked about with regards to how you know equipment being manufactured and the flaws often in it. So, you know, you talked about that with certain uh, even more traditional Boston shakers that there are pieces that again, especially for for tools that are being uh, beat up in a bar, where they're most likely to break down first. With the two sided uh, Japanese jigger that we look at, you talked about how that they are often spot welded in a single place and just with a bar being a rugged place it doesn't take a ton of force for them to split apart so it right. seems like for you you know and this is where you know the frustration and whatever i'm thinking of is like the mother of all in invention but you mm -hmm. kind of looked at like what makes these tools not hold up and really right. brought that there so as opposed to a spot weld for what we might call a japanese style jigger uh you guys are kind of like better sealing it around or with your Boston shakers. And so these are the things that are going to ensure that like, that these things aren't going to break down on you mid-service that you guys have kind of thought about, like that you talked about, there's a precision of manufacturing at times that if you don't hold the manufacturer accountable to. Yes. So I don't expand on that in whatever direction makes sense. Cause it, yeah, I, I loved hearing all of that. Yeah. So the context of that conversation was basically like my frustration with bar tools and why we started the bar above. And once again, oftentimes it goes back to frustration with those tools, even at the professional level at that time. And I started attending bar in 2013. I think I left around 2000. I don't even remember what year it was. Um, but, you know, there was a lot of companies out there that were producing really fantastic, really beautiful barware that didn't exist before or we didn't have access to. Um, but the things that I found frustrating was if it was, you know, those companies that were producing high-end tools, their customer service was terrible. And for an industry that is really steeped in customer service, I became very frustrated with that. So that is the point of a bar above that we always lean into, you know, we support our industry. We really have great customer service, but when it comes to the functionality of the bar tool and the overall durability of it, you know, if I'm in a, in, if I'm three deep in a Friday night and my jigger splits on me, that's bad manufacturing, that's bad product. And it's just, it's a point of failure. So when we design tools and we look at bar tools, um, we think, and I have a lot of experience in high volume, um, so I know where all these tools fail. So if we produce a tool that will fail and has those same tendencies, then I've done something wrong. It's really terrible customer service on my end to get, put a tool out into the world 
that's going to have the same problems. So even though our tools may look like every other tool out there, other bar tool, I guarantee you once you hold it and once you look at it, and once it's explained to you, there's subtle differences that really make a huge difference. So the Boston Shaker, for example, um, and I'll talk about the jigger in a second here. Um, whenever you look at a cocktail shaker, Boston Shaker, on the bottom, there's a weight. And there's like three little dots on the bottom. And that is the only spot well that is holding that weight to that shaker. And there's a couple reasons why they have the weight on there. First, it creates rigidity in the overall shaker. So instead of bending and flexing the metal, it's much more rigid. And it just adds a nice weight for an ergonomic feel. But the point of failure on those shakers are where those three spot welds are. It is not sealed from the outside environment. So water gets in there, it rusts, it corrodes, it's kind of gross. You throw it through the washer, it's going to get really kind of gnarly looking underneath there. And when that weight falls off, it's unusable. It is, it is so gross and so disgusting that if a customer sees you on that using that shaker, it's, it's trash. Like you're not going to get a tip and it's going to be leave bad reviews. So you have to throw it away. So with our shakers, what we do is we weld that weight all the way around. Water's not going to get in there. And I guarantee you this thing is never, ever going to fall off. Like if it ever falls off, you have to send it to me and I, I will put it in a museum somewhere, the Obar above museum that doesn't exist. But it enhances the durability. Like you have two layers of metal in here, right? And it's not going to fall apart. Um, when we first released our shakers, the story I tell quite often is um, we have a weighted and unweighted shaker. Um, so the, the large shaker is weighted, welded all the way around, and the top, the smaller one, the Cheaterton, is not weighted. So there's no weight, it's just a piece of metal. Um, and that's my preference, and we'll, we'll explain a little bit why here in a second, but I sent a bunch of those out to a friend of mine in a high-volume bar in Miami, and he sent it back to me a year ago, and we released our bar products in like 2015, I want to say. So in that time, he made 100,000 cocktails in that shaker, and it finally broke. I don't know of any other cocktail shaker in the world that's going to produce 100,000 cocktails. And if it was a weighted weighted, he'd still be using it. So um, we really do focus on durability, functionality um, as a way of looking at our board poles. Um, with a weighted unweighted shaker, um, so I talked about it, the large tin is weighted, the smaller cheater tin is unweighted. Um, and we talked about the rigidity. So the weight adds that rigidness to your large shaker tin so it doesn't have any flexibility to it it's really just a nice solid piece of metal on the unweighted side there is no weight making it rigid so it's really flexible it's a little bit more flexible um and so what that does it creates this really tight seal and this is really important when you make egg white cocktails so when you make egg white cocktails you shake it up the volume of the gas inside of there starts to expand breaking the seal on a weighted weighted shaker and opening it up and if you're in mid-service, you're going to be wearing that cocktail for the rest of the day. So the weighted, unweighted, the unweighted shaker flexes and seals around the weighted shaker, and it makes a nice, really, really airtight seal. It's a little harder to get open, but it's a price that I'm willing to pay if I'm doing a ton of egg white cocktails. Um, so that's kind of the where we started at was that was our original shaker. But all these little differences really do add up. On the Japanese jigger side, um, you know, there are, when you look at a Japanese jigger, if you look all the way to the bottom, like you look inside the cone, there are three dots inside the bottom. And those are the only three things holding um, the jigger together. There's a little kind of a crown. I don't have one with me. Um, yeah, I do. Hold on one second, I'll get it. 
So there's a little crown or a spacer right in the middle um, that join the two cups. And basically all that is is a really attractive looking seal that hides where that joint is. That's the only functionality. And it kind of feels good in the hand too. Um, but that's that's the only thing. Um, so ours uh, do have the three spots in it. You can kind of see them on camera here. Sorry for the audio, but you can see those three dots in the camera there. Sure. But what we've done is we've actually welded both sides of the crown as well, that spacer. So this thing is all functionally one piece of metal at this point. It's never going to break. It's never going to fall apart. Um, and it's just, it's created for a commercial environment, but you can also use it at home. And we've also added every quarter ounce measurement. So quarter, all the way up to one on a short side, starting at one, all the way up to two, every quarter ounce. And we also have bar spoon measurements. And I think this is the only jigger that I know of that does have that as well. So once again, extra functionality, extra durability. Yeah. So when I heard you first talk about the merits of the unweighted and the egg white cocktail, uh, I, while I'm sure maybe I could have done more exhaustive research to date, mm -hmm. no one had ever been able to give me a good answer of why I have a problem with egg whites occasionally, even when I think I've got that shaker sealed down pretty well, you right. know, even if not there, I'm not wearing it, Chris, you know, it is, it is, it is still, it's, it's foaming out. Right. Right. And, mm -hmm. and there's been times when I admittedly have surrendered doing egg white cocktails when I do more of an open to the public class, because I'm like, mm -hmm. yeah, you want to talk about a bad rating, you know, when a guest gets egg white on themselves, then that's, nobody's having any fun at that point in time. So that was right. so interesting to hear in terms of, the lack of that weighting, making that half of the shaker more flexible, enabling that tighter seal. I was like, that makes sense. So, uh, well, and it's funny because that combination didn't exist in the marketplace until we brought it to market. And after that, you know, we, we were very successful when we launched and the nature of Amazon, there's a lot of copycats out there. So once we became successful, everybody started copying that, not knowing the reasons why. They just like, oh, they sell it. They're doing really well. So let's sell the same thing. Um, so without really understanding the reason why, it's really hard to communicate those advantages um, to people that are buying your shakers. So that is the reason why. Well, I'll be sure to uh, email you a picture of me with egg white on me and said, should have used it, <laughs> should have used a weighted, unweighted. So. <laughs> Um, the, so the other thing about the jigger that was interesting, you know, for those of us that have not gone through a manufacturing process before that I found yes. intriguing is, uh, and, and if my brother's listening, he's an industrial engineer, he'll just roll his eyes right now. But to me, you said something about the idea that, listen, within a certain margin of error that you don't want, especially within finicky craft cocktails, that on certain jiggers out there, it might say one ounce and yet it's not one ounce. Now, right. talk to us about that because you said you talked about sending product back to manufacturers before for various reasons, but talk to us about variation in terms of what you ordered versus what you're getting. Yeah, so this was um, when we started a bar above, it's mostly a YouTube and a blog, um, trying to communicate craft cocktail techniques when nobody else was doing that. Um, so one of the posts that I did was about, I did a roundup of all the jiggers and um weighed everything out um, from using water to get accurate measurements across the board. And I found that the variants on these were so wild that it was unbelievable to me. Like these are, you know, people trust this with their, 
cocktail recipes, and not only that, but from a costing perspective too, right? If you have a 20% variance, that's going to hit your bottom line. And, you know, we're talking about fractions of ounces here. Um, but for the most part, some of the jiggers that I found were like 20% variance. So this adds up over quite a bit. And if we start thinking about uh, specifically about craft cocktails, because that's my, my background, um, you know, we have really powerful ingredients that we work with and we need to be able to precisely control them. Like a 20% difference in green chartreuse is going to dominate a cocktail. A 20% variance in a Luxardo Marcino uh, liqueur is going to destroy a cocktail. So these things really do matter once we start engineering cocktails. Um, you know, this is another one. This, um, uh, what is this stuff? I'm sorry. Tingala, the the um, buzz button liqueur, Szechuan pepper oh. liqueur. This is powerful stuff, man. So like all this small variances um, are really, really do have wild swings on flavors and profiles. Um, and you want to be able to trust your gear. So if you have an entire crew running the same gear, then you have 20% over and you have 20% under. That's a huge difference as far as consistency, customer service, and everybody getting a standard cocktail. So this is kind of why I, I found that particular thing very frustrating. And that's why we're so fanatical about our tolerances. So we have less than a 5% variance allowance on every measurement across the board. Um, and if it do, they don't hit those tolerances, then we send it back. Um, we, mm -hmm. we, won't, we won't allow it to come out because we know what it means on the end. Yeah. Is it something where at least, you know, knowing that it, at times how the, the machines are in theory built that are creating this, you know, or finalizing a product. I mean, as long as you've test, if you get a run of say, you know, 250 jiggers and you test mm -hmm. one or two of them and they're hitting spec, are you worried about the other 248? Or are you like, as, as long as, you know, they have their machine, you know, uh, you know, calibrated properly. Uh, are you ever worried about the rest of a run or, or does that seem like it's pretty consistent then as long as that? Yeah. So, I mean, the, the other thing about, so yes, I'm worried. I'm always worried about that, but we have a pretty large sample size as far as a production run goes. So, um, you know, we, we are fanatical about our accuracy and just quality in general. Um, so we're going to do a very large sample size of the production run, making sure that it's in its marks. Um, and if product goes out into the world that isn't up to our standards, if somebody says, hey, man, this isn't right, send it back to me and I'll send you a brand new one. Like we're as fanatical as we are about quality, we are even more fanatical about customer service. Um, so if there's any and ever any issue, um, if you reach out to us and our team, we will have something in the mail probably the next day. So um, it's something that we take very, very seriously. Mm -hmm. So it, it, I mean... It seems like you certainly take this very intensive pass, which I found really exciting to kind of hear you expound upon in this way. And, you know, mm -hmm. talking, you heard you talking about like, you know, improvements to the Lewis bag and whatnot, but are there, um, you know, so I had written down, I wanted to talk about speed pours, like in terms of why they, why shitty ones suck so bad, but like, yeah, are there the, the tools where you feel like you have made the biggest leaps and bounds improvements on the market. And I know you've put like 80 pro products into the market, so I don't want to make you rack your brain too much, but like, are there things where you're just like, this is so head and above the competition, you know, because it seems like you're always looking for that, that edge. Yeah. Um, you know, I think there are a handful of products that just really do shine in our portfolio and I'm exceptionally proud of. 
Um, and we always reiterate. So we never rest on our laurels. For example, um, the coatings we do now are different from the coatings we launch with because now the coatings that we have here are dishwasher safe. So we always take a look at what's out in the industry. How can we improve? How can we take even existing bar tools in our catalog to the next level? Um, recently, we added a bar spoon measurement to our jiggers that didn't exist in any other lineup we had before. So we're constantly improving the things that we already have. So, um, you know, as far as the things that really do shine in our, our uh, portfolio, the cocktail shakers, in my opinion, are some of the best in the world. You know, if you if you buy our cocktail shakers, you will probably be handing these down to your grandkids. And I'm not exaggerating. Like, they're just that good. Um, the jiggers, I think, kind of speak for themselves. Um, I think the quality of them, the functionality and the differences that we have are really great. I think one of the ones that really surprised me is our bar mats um, because we, we, I have a lot of frustration with bar mats, um, you know, the, specifically the really cheap ones. So they're usually thin rubber and they're, they never lay flat. And this matters when you're doing high volume service, you know, you put a martini glass on something and it's not flat, it's gonna tip and you're gonna have to make the cocktail again and all that. So our bar mats um, are food grade silicone, first of all, and they're heavy AF. They are so heavy. Um, I remember we got a shipment uh, of bar mats in, and it came in a delivery truck and the guy used a pallet jack to lift it's not even a full pallet. It's like a quarter of a pallet of these uh, bar mats. And it broke the damn jack. They're just so heavy. <laughs> so, and we had to figure out how to get this thing. We had to take them off case by case. And these cases are like, I don't even know how many there were, like 10 or 15. They're 50 pounds each. They're heavy, heavy bar mats. Um, but they're food grade silicone. They're thick. And they are just things of beauty. Um, and the thing that makes them so good is they're dead flat. The dimensions stay accurate through washing, through service, through high temp, through low temp. It doesn't matter. They're going to stay dead flat. And when you join them, they're going to be perfect, right? There's not going to be gaps. They're not going to be fluctuations in levelness. Like it's just a dead flat surface. So we um, that has been a kind of a product that just has absolutely surprised us on kind of the uptake in the market. And I'll be honest, I didn't develop that one. My wife did. And she's like, I think there's a need for this. And I'm like, all right, nobody's going to spend $40 on a bar mat. We sell them all day long. It's incredible. And when I look at the reviews on Amazon, people are using them for the most random things. And I absolutely love it. <laughs> it's so cool. I, I do remember I had written down, yeah, it said that uh, to, to my asking that question, on the website, it says the best dang bar mat in the whole world. And I have certainly had them tear before when they're sticking, you know, to, you know, a surface or whatever. And, um, yeah. And especially, you know, I don't, I don't work in as high volume of a, of a situation at all, but for people that, you know, once you're moving, you don't want to be stopping. That is, that's really cool to hear. And, uh, yeah, the only, the only downside, what is it's like, you know, the product costs, 40 bucks and like, yeah, like the shipping on that. Yeah. But anyways, but like, but the good news is for them for a bar, I'm sure it's looking at that as a one-time hope. Well, maybe not a one-time, but a very infrequent uh, expenditure. I think it's probably a lifetime product. If I'm, if I'm guessing like, especially at home, you're never going to buy one of these again. You'll probably buy multiple of them, but you're not going to get rid of it because something bad happened to it. And I would imagine the same thing in the commercial setting. They're just that good. 
Um, I remember during a photo shoot of this, um, I had this crazy idea, you know, thinking about infomercials and like ways of like really portraying the quality of these things. So I have a big um, Ram truck, a 1500. So I just parked on it. I literally drove my truck onto the bar mat, parked on it, took the photos, took it off, and it was fine. There was nothing wrong. It didn't split. It didn't do anything. It is so durable. It's absolutely incredible. Um, so yeah, that's definitely one of those kind of unicorn products for us, for sure. Well, that well, that's certainly it. It's not the bar above shaker. It's like this bar mat was handed down to me by Mike. <laughs> kind of, yeah. It's it's wow. pretty pretty incredible. <laughs> Yeah. And so at this point, I know you also, uh, I remember hearing you talk about that. Obviously, you know, you got into this to make better products for, you know, industry professionals, but really, you know, the pandemic things that brought my work to life in a way also really brought a lot of enthusiasts at home. Um, and so, yeah, like at this point in time, I mean, is, is there a way you think about your sales? Obviously the enthusiast market is so much bigger than the industry professional, but who, but, but, are the sales just going everywhere right now or, or how do you think about like how, how your business splits out at this point? Yeah. So um, we find that the majority of the people that buy our tools, um, they're kind of all over the place. If I'm being honest, there's a lot of industry professionals and there's a lot of enthusiasts. And I think when we set out to kind of design the bar tools is uh, the way I thought about it was, you know, you get, if you see your bartender using our tools, it kind of has this halo effect. Like it's industry approved kind of scenario. Um, and, but when we started launching on Amazon, um, we just took off. I mean, it was, it's the biggest marketplace in the world. Um, and we sell a lot of our product through Amazon. So I think by the nature of that, you know, people that do work in bars and restaurants do have access to us through our website and through Amazon, but the enthusiast market is just to your point, just so much bigger. And so just by the sheer size of it, um, the makeup of our, um, of our customers definitely tends to go more on the uh, enthusiast side. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, final uh, equipment question at least comes to mind. Uh, there's anything yeah. we haven't touched on. Let me know. Uh, so as someone's getting started, and I'm sure this could be reflected on the sets that you guys also have available, but for someone, you know, more particular, I'm sure at home, uh, who's probably like more just like, Hey, it looks like I probably need something like this. What are the the tools that you feel like make the biggest difference in someone kind of moving from okay drinks to pretty darn good drinks in terms of for, for someone that's ready to begin to level up, what are the things mm -hmm. that they're not going to regret investing in? Yeah, and it really does depend on what the style of drink they 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 like to make, right? Because if you're making a sour style cocktail that has, you know, fruit and acid and all that stuff, um, it's going to be a very different equipment profile than somebody that's more old fashioned, more Negroni, more in Manhattan. So I'll kind of answer both both sides of that question. So for the person that likes those lighter, those fruitier style drinks, like the margaritas or, you know, something that is very acid driven, um, you know, cocktail shakers, you know, if you go from a cobbler to a Hawthorne or a Boston, it's going to be a better experience. Um, you have more headspace. You can do egg white cocktails. They'll fluff up better just because you have a larger volume of air in there. Um, there's a lot of benefits to using a Boston, in my opinion, over a cobbler. So if you're making that transition, that's a good one to make. And you can also hold more cocktails in it. It's just, it's a better cocktail experience. Um, the jigger, no brainer, um, a good Hawthorne strainer, like all these things really do matter. Um, so I think, you know, all those things, um, 
can really help. Um, the fine strainer that we have, I think, is really, really unique and really helpful as well. And this is all about those final touches, those real finesse touches that may not be perceptible, but do make us an impact on the cocktail. Um, so the that you can pour two cocktails through it at once um, for the large one, the small one will do an individual. Um, but it is about separating the pulp out. It's about creating this nice velvety texture for shaking cocktails and keeping the art shards out. So it's a nice, consistent, uniform drinking experience. So that's a really good product. And most likely if you're a home enthusiast and you're just getting, you know, leveling, leveling up your gear, that's one that you probably don't have in your arsenal. You may have something you're using, tea strainer, colander, whatever. Um, but a purpose-driven cocktail strainer is really, really, really helpful uh, for that kind of stuff. Um, and it really depends on how deep you want to go um, sure. with that. Bitters bottles, you know, atomizers, smoke machines, you, you name it. You can kind of go, <laughs> go down a rabbit hole if you want to. Um, on a stirred cocktail set uh, or a side, um, a mixing glass, it just makes the experience of making a cocktail so much better. Um, and it looks cool. Like you're, if you're entertaining, you know, you're earning points on the presentation and the care that you're putting in that cocktail. People are going to consider you pretty good at making cocktails just by the experience they get from watching you make that. Um, you know, a proper bar spoon, a strainer, you know, all these things really do help with kind of that zen of making a cocktail, you know, the ritual of making a cocktail. Um, and I think those would be really, really great pieces to add into any collection. Um, and jiggers are just a workhorse. So if you get a high quality jigger, you can use it for stirred, you can use it for shaken, you can use it for we have a milliliter jigger and I use it for medicine for my two kids. <laughs> it's, it's pretty great. <laughs> ne never have I ever used a jigger for medicine. Right. Exactly. A hundred percent. And so I guess on the other end of things, obviously, you know, YouTube is where, you know, as it, what was it? The story you tell that, uh, you know, cause, cause every once in a while I can feel father time beginning to catch up to me in, in my right. life. But you talked about as you were getting started, uh, and thought, thinking about putting content out there that you were going to, in whatever year it was, uh, not long enough ago, unfortunately, you were going to put it, things out in DVD box sets. And you're thankfully your wife again with the, uh, the big win was like, okay, there grandpa, let's slow a it down. Bit. Yeah. A little bit. <laughs> and, so yeah, you were certainly one of the people pushing content early on via mm -hmm. YouTube, but now you've kind of begun to bundle things through your online courses at this at this point. Mm -hmm. uh, tell us a little bit about kind of uh, bringing those th those courses to life too. Yeah, so we started off as mostly informational um, content. So we were more of a media company in the beginning than we were a manufacturer. Um, and the reason for this is because I was passionate about transferring this information um, to others because I didn't have access to it. It was very early on in the mixology movement, craft cocktail movement, you know, whatever it is, whatever word you want to call it. Um, and I found it to be a very negative space. Um, so if you wanted to learn the information, you either had to work at a high end bar or you had to learn it yourself through trial and error. So um, that frustration really was the start of a bar above. Um, so then, you know, once I started working in San Francisco and started seeing kind of the best of the best as far as like techniques and reasons why you do things behind the bar and really start to earn that, learn that information, um, I wanted to communicate that out to somebody that's in Kansas, for example, or somebody that's in, you know, Des Moines or someone that's in Europe. If they wanted access to this, they should be able to have access to this information. 
So that was kind of the driving force on it. And then in 2014, we launched the mixology certification. And the whole reason for one of the kind of original ideas of um, a bar above that you mentioned um, in the Philip Dove conversation was that uh, the original idea was that I was going to communicate cocktail techniques, cocktail structure, cocktail theory, and the framework of cocktails and release them out onto DVD box sets. Because up to this point, um, that's the only thing that I've seen, right? The old flare guys from the old 2000s, this is what they did. Um, they, you know, they sold through magazines, buy our DVD box sets, learn a flare, you know, and make more money. So I was like, cool, there's a path board. I can do that. And then, you know, YouTube started becoming a thing. My wife was a girlfriend at the time was like, yeah, you really need to figure this out. DVDs are not going to be around much longer. Like you need to kind of get with it, get with the younger generation here. So then we started doing uh, releasing content on YouTube. Now, how this kind of fits in with the conversation about training courses is that DVD box set could not be transferred to YouTube. It's just too big. There's just too much information to consume in a very logical way. So you just can't have playlists. You just can't have random videos. It needs to be a structured, almost college level course of, we're gonna take you through the structure of cocktails. Now we're gonna show you the techniques that can be applied to cocktails. Now we're gonna show you cocktail families. And all of a sudden you have access to like, this is the skeleton of making any cocktail that I can imagine. That just can't happen on YouTube. So then we launched the mixology certification, I think it was in 2014. Um, and it almost killed me. Like I'm not, well, I am exaggerating, like physically it didn't, but creatively it was very demanding because it took a year out of our life. Every week we're releasing the next module and it's a nine week course. So if you take it at a respectable rate, you really learn the information that's in that. Um, I recommend a nine week pace. Um, there's homework after every module or every, every lesson um, to really develop your tastes and to kind of cross through that, I'm consuming things on TV versus I'm consuming things in person, flavors, developing my palate, developing my physical skills. So there's a lot of homework that goes after that. Um, so yeah, we launched in 2014 and it was to get that kind of framework out of my head and kind of check the box on the DVD box set. Um, and it has been very successful for us. Um, I know liquor.com ranks it as the number one bartender education every year for probably five years. Um, so it's it's definitely something I'm very proud of, um, but it's it's dense and it culminates in a, I think it's a 50 or 100, 100 question final exam. I have to double check that. And you have to create three cocktails. You have to pick one cocktail through three technical evolutions to create something that's never been created before. And so I used to grade that in person. Like you send it to me through, um, you know, through email. Uh, but now we have somebody on our team that actually grades every single exam um, and hands you a certification and a grade. So it's, it is very, very intense, um, but I highly recommend it to anybody, especially if you're going to move up to a bar lead or a bar manager, or you're just really passionate about cocktails at home. This is going to teach you everything you need to know about creating your own cocktails. Like I could walk into any, at the end of this, anybody could walk into someone's house that just has a random bar and make fantastic cocktails. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, uh, so first as you know, the iterations of this business and, you know, kind of trying to figure out where my market is, I created mm -hmm. a less comprehensive, uh, course myself and, uh, but it's still, 
it was decent, but yeah, the 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 skeleton, the framing, the shooting, the production uh, did uh, half kill me. So I know what, I know what you mean by that. It's uh, it's hard work. It, yeah, <laughs> it is. Yeah, like when, when you're looking at a final product and it, it was not a successful launch. I don't want to talk about it only with my therapist, but uh, but anyways, it's uh, uh but yeah, it, it's trying to get your ideas onto paper like that. So um, mm-hmm. I was curious, like for kind of where my game is. And I really am going to have to like check out some of the, the more special edition ones you guys have put out recently, mm-hmm. going back to our term points of failure. And you kind of, mm-hmm. you were talking about maximum. I remember you talking about maximum flavor extraction. So like you have a course now on infusions, syrups and bitters and tinctures and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Maybe since bitters and tinctures are less common, when you think about infusing flavor into a spirit or to a syrup, are there common points of failure or mistakes or things people aren't thinking about enough? I don't know if there's a way to synthesize this. You know, they really want to know everything, take the course for sure. But like mm-hmm. any general common big mistakes people make when when doing things like that? Yeah, I think there's a couple. And I think this was a whole point of kind of mapping out these courses to really pinpoint what effect each technique is going to have on a cocktail. So we went through three different um, flavor manipulation focuses. The first one was um, syrups. The second one was alcohol infusions. And the third one is bitters and tinctures. And we made, I think, six to seven cocktails in every single one of them. But we try to keep three cocktails consistent all the way through the entire series to really showcase the benefits and the advantages and disadvantages of each one of these techniques so that anybody that got access to this information could really start thinking about this in advance instead of experimenting. So in general, um, it really is about what you're trying to create, you know, the flavor profiles that you're trying to create in cocktails. So for example, uh, one of the kind of takeaways that we had from this course is if you want big, bold, robust flavors that just hit you like a train, you're probably going to want to do a syrup. And this usually focuses mostly on um, fruit syrups, like even purees for this matter. Like you just want that big flavor, right? Um, And so all that flavor happens in the very beginning of the tasting experience. It does lengthen it out a little bit, but for the most part, it hits hard, it hits fast, um, and then it goes away, right? So probably towards that mid-palate, it it starts to diminish. But when we started to do the similar flavors in uh, infusions, um, you know, those big, bold fruit flavors, those are a lot more subtle, right? Those are sugar-based flavors, and alcohol and sugar don't really interact that well. Um, so they don't pull that same flavor that a syrup is going to pull. So what we saw is that the tasting experience was a lot more subtle, sophisticated, and a little bit less bold, um, when it came to fruit, but like spices and teas and dry ingredients, man, that's where infusions really do shine. They just get elevated, they get punchy, um, and that tasting experience just stretches forever. So you have two almost diametric uh, flavor evolutions happening. Syrups, you got this big, bold flavor. Boom, it happens quick. Mid-palate starts to die off. And then, you know, some of the other things come in underneath it. With infusions, it takes time for these flavors to develop. You get these peaks and valleys throughout your entire flavor experience, and it just takes longer to taste everything. It's a really cool experience. If you want to have like a minute, minute and a half flavor experience, infusions are probably where you want to go. But when you start combining these two things, that's where things get really cool, right? You get that big, bold punch. You get that, I'm strawberry. 
I'm orange, whatever that flavor is. And then after that, you're like, okay, mid palate's dying down. Now the infusion starts to come in after it. And you start to get this like roller coaster of flavor that's happening. And it really starts to be the next level, right? This is where we take that last word, which is already a bomb cocktail. That thing has so much flavor. And now you can be more precise. You can start to really engineer flavors um, in the beginning. And then the last thing with the bitters and tinctures, this is your scalpel. This is, I want to insert strawberry. And it's not big, it's not bold, but it's there. I want to insert chamomile tea. I want to insert cinnamon. And so you have this really interesting tool set now in front of you from a flavor development perspective that unless you know what you're doing and have trialed these things side by side, you don't really think about but now you can. So it really is whole new tools in the toolkit of creating cocktails, engineering cocktails with a really focused purpose. So that's kind of the main takeaways I've I, that we had from these courses. Um, and there was some, I'm not, there were some cocktails in there that I've never had before that blew my mind. Um, oh. So I was, I was pretty excited about that. <laughs> that's, that's exciting. And I, yeah, I mean, it's another call for me to certainly like definitely invest in it. But the idea of just as you talk about all the time with cocktail theory or whatnot, like how to think mm -hmm. about this, right, is I think right. the, the biggest thing, you know, the average person, they're just they when they look at something, they're like, OK, what what now? And a framework for how to begin to think about it in terms of, you know, you know, you know damn near overwhelm. Are we looking for something more subtle and protracted or, right. you know, very very exacting and mm -hmm. how to think about what are these ingredients for is, is great right there. Um, mm -hmm. For the, um, so I, I don't know if there's a good way to answer this too, but um, one of the questions I was like is, so for the mixology certification, so for a, you know, a lead bartender out there who is, you know, take, takes this, you know, at this point in time and they work in a reputable enough bar, are there mistakes or overlooked technique for someone who is pretty capable at the job? Are there areas you often still find a room for improvement for people? Uh, well, and it's all a personal uh, expression, right? This is one of the things I love about cocktails and cocktail creation is it is about creativity. It is about exercising your own creativity with the skill set that you have. And so in my opinion, it's just like drawing. It's just like painting. Um, it's just like creating music. Everything is very personal. So as far as like things that I see are wrong, I don't think there's anything wrong. Like if you're going to do this, do it. Awesome. I will support you. I'll be very happy with you. And I will drink your cocktails and I'm sure it'll be really great. Um, and I think it's more about like maximizing opportunities, right? So if you have this vision in your head, and this is kind of the frustration that I had when early on is like, I have these flavor combinations in my head. I know how I want this cocktail to hit. I can't do it and it frustrates me, right? So then I'm like, okay, trial error, trial error, trial error, trial error. And I go through a case of vodka and next thing you know, or gin or bourbon, whatever I'm experimenting with. And, once, and after that, I'm like, I got it. And so then I'm like, cool, I got this. But it, it as far as that goes, like when it comes to bartending and opportunities, I, I, I think it is just a reflection of the bar program, the skill set. And I really wish that more restaurants and bars really invested in education 
uh, when it comes to developing these skills for people that are passionate about it. Um, but on the other side of that, like for me, it's about maximizing money. Like when you are attending bar, that is your business. You have six seats, 12 seats, a well, whatever your space looks like, you have to think about maximizing your profitability for the amount of time that you're there. So that's, I look at bartending as a business. So uh, this is something that I kind of talked about um, through a couple different podcasts. And it really is about being selective with your clientele, um, like developing the right regulars is huge for making more money, right? Just if you can figure that out early, that's fantastic. You know, if you have really social people that love to spend money, love to interact with other people at the get bar, that's a gold mine. Like you're never going to be slow. You're just going to have regulars pouring in all the time. Um, so I really think that, you know, developing skills with cocktails is great. Developing skills at the bartender is just going to make you more money. And I think that's where you really, I, any advice I'd give to bartenders is just like, figure that out, man. Just get really good at developing regulars, working under intense scenarios, putting systems in place so that regulars can entertain each other. Um, and you could still be three deep and still come back into the conversation, bounce in, bounce out. Like there's a lot of dynamics of bartending that if, if you figure it out early, you're just going to be making more money. Mm -hmm. So another place that we're at right now in cocktails and have been for a while is, you know, super mm -hmm. complex, super complex builds and whatnot in terms of, you know, things we're batching in advance or just things that are more labor intensive, you know, sure. is, you know, in terms of bars driving profitability, I guess there's a number of ways to do it, but are there, you know, four bars that are more family restaurants who are looking over, you know, the chasm at cocktails. I mean, at times made well, they're going to have great margin on them. So, I mean, in general, when it comes to, I, I, I would agree that, you know, guests having a great time is going to lead to better tips, hopefully even more sales and all these things. Mm -hmm. But, you know, are there different paths you think about for suggesting bars, uh, drive drive more revenue become more profitable or and and obviously each one is their own but are there are there are there programs or formats you ever like to suggest people look at well um as far as like building more revenue into a bar is that the question like how to increase sales how to increase just sure. how much money you're making okay um it really depends on the the the, um, the cocktail program or the bar program or the food program like they have to mirror each other right and you have to be real thoughtful of it because if you're like a neighborhood bar you're a dive bar you're not going to be doing complex builds. You're not going to be doing a 14-step martini or, you know, a 15-step, whatever you want to call it. You know, it is all about creating that vibe, creating that environment, creating good, just, you know, turn on, you know, getting people in that door. It is about pulling people into your, into your space, making a solid relationship and giving them a reason to keep coming back, right? So it really is about the place, the bar, and kind of the focus of it uh, with fine dining, you know, not everybody can go to a fine dining restaurant every night. Nobody, I, I don't want to do that, you know? <laughs> um, so that commitment and that kind of lift is going to be a little bit different from kind of that neighborhood bar that we talked about. The food has to pull people in. The cocktail po program has to pull people in. There has to be a good reason for them to get there. Um, and then, you know, give them the best possible experience where they're there so that they will recommend it to a friend. They'll bring their friends. They'll come back, um, you know, next time they're in town or something like that. Um, but as far as, you know, it's trying to find the opportunities that already exist in your business. If you're three deep in a bar, 
there's a lot of opportunity to just make more money. There just is like, you know, consolidating steps, making easier cocktails, draft cocktails, you know, just recommending the easy high volume cocktails when you're three deep at a bar, that's going to make you more money. Um, you know, being able to multitask, you know, take two orders while you're building one order, while you're cleaning a bar and presenting a check, like that will make you more money. So being more efficient with everything that you do behind the bar uh, from that perspective. So it really depends on kind of the the place. And I, I know that's kind of a cop-out answer. <laughs> well, I think um, I'm, you know, I, I was certainly, uh, I love, you know, I'm sure I can dig into more of just the content and things you've put out out there. Because yes, I mean, there's so many different uh, styles of bars and restaurants out there. There's never mm -hmm. going to be an answer. And I think for myself, selfishly, as I look to grow my own business, I have been talking with a number of bars and restaurants about uh, driving more revenue that that don't currently really have a cocktail program or a or a for all intents and purposes a suboptimal one. And sure. I don't want to force a neighborhood bar and grill to become. I'm not trying to put, push them to become a, a high end martini joint, but. But what are the points in which, you know, because they're looking at like they haven't trained their staff to, right. you know, on technique, they're not built out for that. And you can certainly retool that space. But the question is, you know, if they're view themselves largely as a beer, a beer and, you know, uh, you know, a scotch and soda or whatever kind of place, when are there financial advantages to invest in that if they, you know, if it's presented in a way that uh, is approachable to the guests and is the right price point or whatnot, so. Yeah. And so now we're talking about kind of consulting avenue, right? Of yeah. walking into a bar and saying, I can make you more money with this program scenario. Um, and I think there's many different ways of doing that. Obviously, you know, this is something I did a lot of um, when I was earlier in our in our business, as I did um, a decent amount of consulting. And um, there's a lot of way to do it. I think most bars owners are kind of apprehensive um, when it comes to being approached with that kind of avenue. Um, so if, unless you have data, unless you have like, you know, I can see that on a Friday night, you have 350 checks. If you were to increase that by 10%, this is what it would mean to your bottom line. Like if you have that kind of powerful data, when you present, um, to an owner, like all they want to know is what it's going to cost them and how much money it's going to make. Right. What's the lift look like from their end? Because to your point, you know, if I'm going in, I'm saying, look, you guys can make, 25% more to your bottom line, that's persuasive. But if it means that I'm going to have to train your entire staff for six months to get there, that might not be so compelling. So it really is about making it a no-brainer for the from the owner-operator. Um, so, and the other thing is, you know, where's that money coming from? You know, if you're if you're approaching them from a consulting aspect, and saying, you know, I can do this for your bar, it's going to be this amount of money. Now that's a whole other avenue that they have to weigh. Like, you know, is this going to be a long-term investment for me? Is this the direction I want to go? Is the payoff going to be worth it? So there's a lot of creative ways to get other people to pay for that. Um, that might be a matter of partnering with the distributor that provides spirits to that, that bar and restaurant and saying, look, you know, I have a good relationship with this distributor. This is something I've done in the past. They have agreed that if you have proper placements for some of their spirits, they're willing to hire me as an outside consultant in order to make this happen for you. It's going to cost you nothing. This is what you can expect at the end. This is a commitment you have to make. That's a very different conversation, right? Mm -hmm. So 
finding strategic partners on a consulting side is really, really helpful. Okay. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, this turned into a little therapy session for me right here. Yeah. I've, uh, <laughs> I've, yeah. Like, so for me, it got started as, uh, in home and, you know, kind of like, you know, corporate events and whatnot, and all these parties and like, they're, they're fun. They're great. And they're great. it's just, but it is more seasonal than I'd like. And mm -hmm. I've reached the point and also having the right people with the right level of industry experience in my stable that, you know, we can bring a comprehensive set of services. And now it's kind mm -hmm. of finding that right market to your point. So what do you do to take right. some of the sting out of that investment or just make it more of a no brainer for the right fit of a client? Um, yeah. So uh, I had somebody yeah, tell and... me, but go no, please go ahead. Uh, I ran into a guy the other day who was telling me too, living in this world still, he goes, most of the business he does drum up is our, our new, our new ventures. And, uh, which makes sense in terms of that, like, well, we haven't really fully finished building the car yet. So yeah, now would be a great time to come in as opposed to the car is in motion, but right. I'm sure there's also just in this world, there's the right amount of prospecting to, um, just existing businesses that are, can feel, uh, I've had several restaurateurs reach out to me who can feel the number of, of clients now asking for cocktails that weren't before and that they can see the money disappearing uh, or mm -hmm. they can just feel that their popularity is slipping perhaps since they can, they don't have a comprehensive offering anymore. Right. Yeah. And, uh, you know, there's there's a lot of ways, there's a lot of different ways to approach this business of consulting and there's a lot of ways in and there's a lot of like different kind of angles that you can take with it. You know, the setup side is a very, very big part of consulting. Like if you can get it on the ground level, that's the ideal scenario um, because you have a lot of work ahead of you, you know, build out training, product placements, talking with vendors, all that stuff. Um, it's a really very, very different animal than like, I'm going to revamp your cocktail menu. So there's a lot of different ways into a, to an establishment. And I think once you're in, you know, really over delivering on the value and building positive relationship with all the vendors that you interact with, letting them know that you exist so they can suggest you as a service is huge. Like word of mouth, you know, if there's an incentive program that you can put in place of like, hey man, we get a contract, I'm happy to put placement for you in these restaurants. Like that's kind of the unspoken arrangement that most people have. And there's a lot of like, even under under the table shady stuff that restaurant and bar consultants can do, which I, I always veer away from. But um, yeah, there's a lot of um, a lot of ways to approach this from a very strategic level as well. Okay. Well, thank you for those thoughts. I appreciate it. Um, so, for you guys right now, like, what are kind of your priorities going forward? What else? What else? What else should we cover about a bar above right now? What, what will be new in twenty twenty four? Oh man, we have so much planned for 2024. Um, we are constantly doing product development. So like today I'm reviewing a bartender bag that we're creating and hopefully having out in summer. Um, we have our first utility patent coming out hopefully this year and it's pretty exciting. Um, I can't really talk about it, but um, I'm you you will hear it and I will tell you all about it when it, when it comes in. Um, but we constantly have product development uh, happening. So last year, I think we... We're hoping to get 25 products out the door, and I think we hit somewhere around 15 or 20. Um, so it's just constant product development, um, constant education. So we have classes, you know, that we're crafting all the time. Um, so the next round, and I'm going to have to check to see if 
you know, this is still um, viable, but uh, how to make liqueurs at home um, is another concept that we've come up with. Um, so they're just, there's always something that we're working on. It's never a shortage. I think in, I think in 2023, when I started mapping out uh, product development for the year, there was a list of 150 different products um, that we could potentially tackle. So there's a long runway of stuff to make. Um, and it's never a, a matter of what do we do next? It's a matter of like, how much can we do and how fast can we do it? <laughs> mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. it's, uh, it's always exciting here. Um, and we, we all work really hard, um, you know, behind the scenes here at a bar above. So. Well, I've personally experienced just in my own investments that I've made in the business, the difference between substandard equipment and tools and those that are perform and, uh, I, I, I first just want to say thank you for helping me understand the difference in those. And I do also now in my portfolio, based on our conversation, have a couple of things that I think also need an overhaul too. So, uh, mm -hmm. and, uh, I'm a big fan of the beloved, if I, sorry for the other product placement of the beloved OXO jigger, but I'm going to go upstairs and I'm going to weigh out all of them to see if that, uh, actually hits or not. So, uh, yeah, that was one of the worst ones. Sorry. <laughs> well, well, you know what? Now I know. And uh, good. Uh, well, shit. And they, and, may, uh, they may have they may have revamped it. Um, this sure. was many years ago, and I hope that they have. Uh, but yeah, they, it was kind of the worst offender in in the lineup that I had access to at the time. <laughs> well, public service announcement to everybody out there. Um, you know, I. Watching a skilled bartender handle a Japanese jigger is just a skill that as a lay person coming in, I've not had to acquire yet as a skill. And like it's ergonomic, it's so easy to pour. And yet right. if that shit is off. Okay. Well, anyways, I have some <laughs> I have some homework to do. I am very glad I said that. So uh, uh damn it, Oxo, you you market yourself as all of our best friend. Uh <laughs> right. Sorry, man. No, 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 no. I'm, I'm glad you said that. I'm glad I said that, honestly. Uh, I'm going to go throw these things in the trash now. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> um, test them first, because like I said, I really hope they fix it. But yeah, definitely yeah. test them. Thank you for your diligence in the space, because obviously this is a level of investigation that cocktailing deserves. And yet at times, until somebody real actually dug in, we didn't realize things were even broken with things that it's like oh it says an ounce perfect great you know so uh, right. so thank you yeah uh where can this is all pretty easy i think i know it all but like give us the the rundown on where people should go find all your gear and all your videos yeah so um our main hub is always a bar above.com as i'm sure everybody can figure out um we're on youtube we're on pretty much every social platform there is um if you look for a bar above you'll probably see my um, my fate, my smiling face, uh, looking back at you. So sorry about that. Um, but yeah, those are, uh, usually where you can find us. Um, the education is over on the shop.abarabove site, as well as all the, the tools that we talked about and everything else that we're releasing. Um, and definitely encourage everybody to join our mailing list. Um, so you'll get kind of a heads up, a preview of some of the tools that we're coming out to market with. Um, and you'll kind of get kind of that insider knowledge on what we have going on here. So um, those are all where I would love to see people. And we do have a couple of Facebook groups as well, the Craft Bartender uh, Group and the Craft Cocktail Club. 
Um, so if you look for those on Facebook, um, there's a lot of engagement, a lot of people having great conversations in both those groups. And it's just a fun group of people to talk to, to be honest. So plenty, plenty of ways of, uh, of finding us. I'm a new member of the uh, craft bartender group myself and uh, looking forward to seeing what I can uh, learn from all this. So uh, awesome. Chris, thank you. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk. I really appreciate it. I appreciate the invitation. Thank you very much. And one last thing for anybody listening here. Um, you know, we ran a podcast for many years and um, it is a, it's a lot of work. It is very much a lot of work. So if you're listening to this podcast, you're enjoying it, leave a review. It goes a long ways, like really go out, just stop this, leave a review. And um, it's always great to see the feedback and stuff. So, um, but Chris, thank you so much for inviting me. And I really do appreciate it. Hey everybody, thanks for listening. The show notes for today's episode are available at decodingcocktails.com slash podcast. If you'd like to keep up with what we're working on, there are two great ways to do so. One, our short weekly newsletter, Cocktail Confidential, which you can sign up for at decodingcocktails.com slash newsletter. Or give us a follow on Instagram at decodingcocktails. If you think this podcast is great stuff, we'd love it if you'd subscribe or, of course, share an episode with a friend. The Decoding Cocktails podcast is produced by Chris Bay and myself. Thanks for listening. We'll see you again soon, and happy cocktailing.